Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I was born in America, and I grew up thinking fortune cookies were Chinese, right? Because, like, we got them from the Chinese takeout, like, downstairs. And I was only in reading Amy Tan's book, The Joy Light Club, where there's a chapter where, like, fortune cookies are, like, from America. I was like, what? I was, like, 13, right? And, And it was, like, learning that there was no Santa Claus and, you know, Tooth Fairy all at once. And it just kind of shook your worldview. I'm like, how is it not Chinese? This is Chinese-American journalist and documentary producer Jennifer Eight Lee talking about one of the many Chinese-American dishes of her childhood. To her surprise, Jennifer was not alone in that fortune cookie epiphany. Even her mom, who was born on Kinmen Island, just off the Chinese coast, had assumed that fortune cookies came from China. Different parts of China are very diverse, so, like, foods are going to vary. So just because you don't know a dish in Taiwan doesn't mean it's not in Beijing. And to Jennifer's amazement, it wasn't just fortune cookies. When she studied abroad in college, the surprises just kept coming. I went all across the country. You know, I was in Chengdu, I was in Tibet, I was in Mongolia, I was in like Guilin, like all over the country. It was then I was like, oh, there's no General Tso's chicken here. (laughs) Like there are no fortune cookies. There's no beef with broccoli. There's no lo mein. (laughs) There's no roast pork fried rice. So where exactly had all these supposedly Chinese dishes come from? Jennifer decided she was going to find out, and the quest to answer this question would change her life. She traveled to 42 American states and 17 countries, speaking to chefs, restaurant owners, and sampling delicacies of all kinds, from Szechuan alligator in Louisiana to date pancakes in India. Here's a totally fun fact. There's an Irish-Chinese dish. It's called three-in-one. It is curry, french fries, and fried rice mixed in one dish. It is very popular there. And they also think the Chinese people eat this dish. Jennifer documented her adventures in a New York Times bestseller called The Fortune Cookie Chronicles. And the discoveries she made have now been archived for future generations at the Library of Congress. But way back in 2005, when the whole investigation started, Jennifer wasn't thinking about writing a book. In fact, she wasn't thinking about Chinese food at all. She was just minding her own business, sitting on a New York City subway at rush hour. I worked at the New York Times. I lived up in Harlem, and I would commute every day on the 2-3 train. They had this newspaper called AM New York, and there was a story in there about a 
very unusual Powerball lottery situation, you know, 110 second-place winners, where they expected only, like, three or four. 110 second-place winners. This was so unusual that lottery officials suspected fraud. The total payout was about $19 million, enough to nearly wipe out the lottery reserve. But when they launched an investigation, it turned out that all of these players had gotten the winning number not from some criminal mastermind or even the plot of a TV show, but from a fortune cookie. It just so resonated with me because I'm like, who are these 110 people who played and won? How many people are playing numbers from fortune cookies? Because they're all the people who must have played numbers that didn't win. And so I just remember like being totally struck by this and decided that I was going to figure out who these people were. Jennifer tracked down every winner she could find. And one after another, they all told her a version of the same story. She began to realize that all over the country, Chinese food was a routine part of people's lives. It was woven into every community. Chinese food was American food. All their stories came back to a Chinese restaurant and all their stories came back to a fortune cookie. And so it struck me. If your benchmark for Americanness is apple pie, you should ask yourself, when was the last time you ate Chinese food versus when was the last time you ate apple pie? Jennifer didn't know it yet, but that discovery on the subway would consume her life for the next three years. I didn't necessarily know at the very beginning why I was so obsessed with this topic and was just like, where did General Service Chicken come from? Where did the takeout containers come from? Where are fortune cookies from? Right? Like that sort of level of obsessiveness was all-consuming. And it was only after I actually finished the book that I realized what had happened, which is it was my quest to understand my own place as a Chinese-American in the larger world. Everything we eat has a story to tell. Welcome to If This Food Could Talk, a history show for everyone who eats. I'm Claudia Hanna. There are more Chinese restaurants in the U.S. today than there are McDonald's, Burger King's, and KFC's combined. It's neck and neck with pizza as America's most ordered takeout. Today, we're exploring the origins of three famous Chinese-American dishes, chop suey, fortune cookies, and General Tso's chicken. We'll uncover the American history that shaped them and follow Jennifer's journey to discover how understanding the past helped her find peace in the present. Plus, I'll try my hand at making a Chinese-American dish that was my little brother's favorite as a kid, beef and broccoli. All that after the break. Ever since she was a little kid, Jennifer has been asked the same question that I and so many other Americans of non-European descent have heard too many times to count. Where are you from? I'm like, I'm from New York. They're like, no, no, where are you really from? And I'm like, I was born and raised in New York and I'm, you know, live there now. I could not be, quote, more from anywhere on this planet. But I understand what they're saying, right? Which is like, you look for it. Jennifer says that just like the phrase, where are you from? When we go looking for the origins of supposedly Chinese foods like fortune cookies or General Tso's chicken, we run up against a much bigger question. In a country full of immigrants, what does it mean to be American? And just what is American food anyway? Chinese food in America is very much a reflection of Chinese immigration to the States, right? So China, the number one immigration-producing country in the world. America, the number one immigration-producing 
accepting country in the world. And in that intersection are Chinese immigrants and Chinese food. Jennifer realized that she couldn't tell the story of Chinese food in America until she understood the history of the people who created it. Second half of the 1800s in China, especially in southern China, super sucked. It was like there was war, there was famine, you know, there were floods. It was like, it was not a place you wanted to be. So a bunch of Chinese men left and like went overseas to work and many of them showed up in the United States. A lot of them were drawn to San Francisco, the Bay Area, because of the gold rush. And then from there, a lot of them then worked in agriculture and mining and cigar manufacturing and railroads. And the problem was that these were the jobs that American men wanted. And so there was this huge anti-Chinese backlash, you know, boycotts and protests if you hire Chinese people. In the early 19th century, competition for unskilled labor was high, and animosity towards immigrants rose to a fever pitch. Chinese people were especially vulnerable to discrimination and violence. And a quick heads up, there are some descriptions of that violence in just a moment, so please take care while listening. A lot of discrimination against the Chinese population was organized. And at one point, the largest labor union in the country, the American Federation of Labor, actually published a manifesto against the hiring of Chinese workers. It was a book called Meat Versus Rice, American Manhood Versus Asian Coolism, Which Shall Survive. And this idea that American men who ate meat were much more worthy than the Chinese people who ate rice with sticks. As Jennifer continued her research, it dawned on her that she actually knew very little about early Chinese-American experience. There tends to be a whitewashing of our history. And it was in my own personal research that you realize the really rough experience that Chinese had when they came here. One of the most surprising things for me was understanding the huge violent attacks that Chinese endured in America. Like, there was a case in Tacoma, Washington, where like 300 Chinese were like herded into holding pens, and then they were put on a train and shipped off, you know, back south. And then in Seattle, they like literally went door to door in Chinatown, grabbed people and put them on a boat. You know, there's like the Rock Creek Massacre in Wyoming, where the water of the river ran red for three days because of the blood that was shed. The deadliest mass lynching in the history of the United States, it was not in the South, it was not in Mississippi or Alabama, it was with Chinese in Los Angeles in 1871, right near where the modern-day train station is. Nearly 10% of the city's Chinese population were murdered in the Los Angeles massacre, just a few steps away from current-day Union Station. 15 men were publicly hung, and three were beaten to death or shot. One of the victims was just 15 years old. Soon, the U.S. government passed a groundbreaking law that changed immigration in America forever. The Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in stages between 1882 and 1902, and it was the first time in American history that the concept of illegal immigration was introduced. Because until then, you could just, like, show up. The Exclusion Act was one of the earliest pieces of federal legislation to restrict free immigration to the United States. And it also marked the first time that an entire race or ethnic group would be denied entry. This impacted Chinese employment in three ways. One, 
a lot of them left the West because that was super violent. And two, they became self-employed. So you become entrepreneurial because people wouldn't hire you. And then three, they kind of focused on two areas. One was laundries and the other one was restaurants, which is interesting, right? Because those are both women's work, cooking and cleaning, and thus no longer threatening to American men. At first, the anti-Chinese sentiment was so pervasive that white Americans were highly unlikely to patronize Chinese restaurants. There's actually an article from the New York Times from, like, I think, like, 1894, where literally the New York Times ran, like, do the Chinese eat rats? And they sent a reporter out to investigate and, you know, came back and like, oh, there's no evidence of rats in these kitchens. But, like, they legit thought this was, like, a possibility. So it's such an interesting othering. To survive, Chinese restaurant owners needed to do the impossible. They had to appeal to an American consumer. So how did the perception of Chinese people and Chinese food in the U.S. begin to change? As Jennifer dug, a story began to emerge. And it all started with a single dish. I like to say that chop suey is the biggest culinary joke that one culture has played on another. Because chop suey in Mandarin is zasui, which means like odds and ends. So... It's like, you know, when Americans like started going back to China and like they're looking for chop suey, the national dish of China. And the Chinese are like, what are you talking about? And so it's like if like Japanese people showed up in America and they're like, I understand you have this very popular dish called leftovers. You know, oh, I love leftovers. They're so good. Chop suey is the meal that Jennifer calls the OG of American Chinese food. And though you don't see it on Chinese menus too much these days, in its heyday, it was a culinary revelation. It's so fascinating looking at American newspapers starting in the late 1800s, where like chop suey literally is the phenomenon that like sets the nation on fire. There was this girl who spent like, I don't know, it was like $5,000 using like forged checks. She was 15, <laughs> like on buying chop suey and everyone had their you know favorite chop suey joint like the eisenhowers and celebrities it was just like the dish a typical american diet at around this time included a lot of salted meat and potatoes vegetables were mostly boiled and spices were expensive so it's not hard to see why the new flavors and textures of chop suey were so exciting to the american palate but there could be another reason for its sudden rise in popularity there are several origin stories about the dish, and though none of them can be proved, they all seem to revolve around one event in 1896. The visit of a Chinese diplomat named Li Hongzang, and it was this huge deal, huge, huge deal. Hongzang was one of the most powerful statesmen in China, and his trip to the U.S. was front-page news. Articles were written about everything, from the moment his luggage left China to the clothes he wore and the food he ate. Jennifer says the American public was utterly fascinated. And of all the stories that Jennifer has heard, there's one in particular that sparked her interest. I did my research around the time that we managed to digitize newspaper archives in a very large systemic way. So I could go through and look for the phrase like chop suey. And one of the articles that showed up was this Chinese man named Lem Seng, who claimed he was the inventor of chop suey. He said that the American man had basically asked him to like, create some dish that could capitalize with the crazed frenzy of Li Hongzhang's visit at the time. Lem Sen, the man who claims to have invented chop suey, tried to protect his recipe as a new American dish. 
He told his lawyer that chop suey was, quote, no more Chinese than pork and beans. His recipe had been stolen, and he was asking the Supreme Court to stop all restaurant keepers from serving the dish or pay for the privilege. He claims he made it, and then, like, the American man took the recipe and popularized it, and he wanted to assert his IP rights. According to Jennifer's research, the case never made it to trial. But one thing's for certain. Whoever invented chop suey, they had discovered the blueprint for redesigning and exporting Chinese cuisine. Which is basically the formula that's used over and over again by Chinese immigrants in America. You take something which is familiar, and you mix it with something that seems foreign, and then you sell it to the American people. So for chop suey, it's like pork, chicken, beef, something very familiar in terms of meat. And then they mix it with these like exotic vegetables, bean sprouts and water chestnuts and snow peas. But what's interesting about those from a Chinese palate perspective is they are tasteless. They have crunch, but they are tasteless. You are not putting bitter melon or like woodier fungus in chop suey. So it is a complete evolution to the American palate. Chinese restaurant owners had cracked the code. They figured out what consumers would eat and began to repackage Chinese food to suit American tastes, one dish at a time. After the break, the fortune cookie. Thanks to chop suey, by the turn of the 20th century, Americans had fallen so deeply in love with their own idea of Chinese food that a small detail like whether or not it was authentically Chinese just didn't seem to matter. And for Chinese immigrants, attracting American customers was a matter of survival. Restaurant owners were constantly tweaking their menus to appeal to the American palate, and there was one outstanding problem. Diners in the U.S. wanted something sweet at the end of their meal, a little treat to round out the evening. But Jennifer says that's not really part of Chinese culinary tradition. The solution? Fortune cookies. They're there because Americans want dessert. So Chinese people don't have dessert. I mean, now they do because it's from the West. But, like, historically, not really. But you need a dessert for most of Western culture. This dessert issue is something that Chinese restaurants around the world have solved in various ways depending on the taste preference of their customers. In Jamaica, it's cheesecake. And in Italy, it's fried gelato. I remember telling my downstairs roommate in like, I don't know, it was like 2006, Alessandra, fried gelato's not Chinese. She's like, it isn't? But they serve it in all the Chinese restaurants in Italy. I'm like, no. Jennifer even remembers bringing some fortune cookies back to China as an experiment. You know, they look at it and they're like, oh, this is interesting. And then like they would like pop it in their mouth because it's a cookie. And then they would bite. And then they're like, oh, there's a piece of paper in here. Americans are so strange. Why are they putting pieces of paper in their cookies? So if Americans think fortune cookies are Chinese and Chinese people think fortune cookies are American, where are they actually from? Well, this is where things really get interesting, because in order to tell the true story of the Chinese fortune cookie, we have to take a detour to Japan. According to Jennifer, it is now pretty well understood that fortune cookies are a Japanese invention. 
Those early versions looked a little different. They were like bigger and browner, like miso and sesame flavors. So not vanilla and not yellow. The fortunes weren't inside Pac-Man's body. They were like in Pac-Man's mouth, if that makes sense. But like genetic resemblance, unmistakable. There's documentation that traces their arrival in the U.S. to a Japanese man named Makoto Hagiwara at around 1914. He was the owner of the Japanese Tea Garden in Golden Gate Park, San Francisco. It's still there, actually. If you want to go to the Japanese Tea Garden, it's very cute. And they have a Japanese tea house, and you can buy cookies, and you can buy tea. But what Jennifer wanted to know was, how did fortune cookies become so associated with Chinese food that even her own mother had been fooled into thinking they were from her home country? They were definitely being served in Chinese restaurants in the United States in the 1920s. In part, this is interesting, because Chinese restaurants were often run by Japanese people because Americans were not eating sushi. And so you see like all kinds of Asians adapting themselves to whatever Asian meal is like, you know, the most popular. Just like Chinese immigrants had repackaged Chinese food to appeal to American consumers, some Japanese immigrants were now having to package their business and the fortune cookie as Chinese, because that was the Asian food that American consumers were interested in. But that still didn't explain the scale of the fortune cookie rebrand. Exactly when, Jennifer wondered, had the Chinese origin myth become so pervasive? One day, deep in the newspaper archives, she stumbled onto a clue. A story so tiny, it would have been easy to miss. Towards the end of World War II, there was a series of articles listing all of the food that was no longer being rationed by the U.S. government. In one of these articles, there was a mention of Chinese fortune tea cakes. And I was just like, oh, wow, like, that tells you a lot. So one, they were considered Chinese by the end of World War II. They were called fortune tea cakes. So not fortune cookies, but fortune tea cakes. And three, they were popular enough that they could be regulated by the U.S. government. There it was, in black and white. By the end of World War II, even the Roosevelt administration had wrongly assumed that fortune cookies were Chinese. And once she saw it, the answer was so obvious, she couldn't believe it had taken her this long to figure out. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our West Coast became a potential combat zone. In the winter of 1942, President Roosevelt signed an executive order which forcibly removed every person of Japanese descent from the west coast of America and moved them to prison camps scattered across the country. Two-thirds of them were American citizens. Their bakeries, they lost their businesses, they lost their homes. I mean, it's, it's really still, I think, one of the most embarrassing things in American history. And then kind of all the pieces snapped together. Almost overnight, Japanese businesses from Washington State to California were wiped off the map, including the bakeries that were supplying fortune cookies to Chinese restaurants. And at the same time... There was a huge rise in popularity of Chinese food during World War II. So one, like, the Chinese were allies, unlike the Japanese. And then two, Chinese food was very efficient in using meat. So from a rationing standpoint, it made a little bit of meat go a long way. And then, like, you know, three, like, these American men were being sent to the Pacific and they were coming back. They were, you know, being introduced to all these other culinary traditions. Jennifer says this was the perfect storm that created a hole in the market, just as business began to boom. 
Chinese entrepreneurs stepped in to fill it, and fortune cookie production soared. Many of the Japanese bakers Jennifer interviewed said when the war was over and they returned to their homes, fortune cookies were considered a totally Chinese phenomenon. So I like to say the Japanese invented the fortune cookie, the Chinese popularized them, but they're ultimately consumed by Americans. Today, the fortune cookie is a staple of Chinese-American cuisine. About three billion of them are manufactured every year, and the vast majority are sold to Americans. So the question is, without this tragic series of events, would the Japanese fortune cookie be as popular as it is today? There's no way to know for sure, but Jennifer says it's unlikely. The story of the fortune cookie just can't be untangled from the complicated history of America. So that idea of survival and adaptation and, you know, introducing something and then also having things taken away from you, I think, is is very much the story of immigration to the United States, especially, you know, Asian immigration and non-white immigration. During World War II, allyship between China and the U.S. had turned the Chinese Exclusion Act into a political liability. And by 1943, it was repealed. But laws surrounding immigration to the U.S. would not change significantly for another 20 years. Finally, in 1965, Congress passed the Immigration Reform Act, which opened the doors to a new kind of Chinese immigrant. Professional chefs were now entering the country, and they would create an entirely new kind of Chinese food including one of the most popular Chinese-American dishes of the last 40 years. In America, General Tso's like Colonel Sanders. He's known for chicken and not war. But in China, this guy's actually known for war and not chicken. General Tso's chicken began showing up in New York City in the early 1970s. And since then, this sweet and savory recipe has captivated American diners in every corner of the country. It's so popular that I promise you, like, General So's name is, like, spoken by Americans more than any other Chinese figure, more so than Mao Zedong, more so than Confucius. Like, he represents the everyman Chinese grandpa figure. And so you can see not just General So's chicken, but just General So's tofu, General So's dumplings. I've seen General So's pizza, General So's burrito. Like, he has mastered the brand extension, this man. Jennifer says that the real-life General So is also famous in China but for entirely different reasons. In a strange twist of fate, the namesake of America's favorite Chinese food played a central role in a war that displaced millions of Chinese people in the 19th century, many of whom fled to America in that first wave of immigration way back at the beginning of our story. Yes, he's a real guy. Chinese name is Zhou Zhongtang. He was a Qing Dynasty military hero who played an important role in suppressing the Taiping Rebellion, which was a civil war started by this Chinese man who thought he was the son of God. 20 million people died in that civil war, still by far the deadly civil war in global history. So how had this monumental figure in Chinese history become so intertwined with deep-fried chicken and broccoli? And did anyone in China actually eat the dish? To find out, Jennifer traveled almost 8,000 miles to General So's birthplace, a small village a few miles north of Changsha in Hunan province. At the end of a dirt road surrounded by rice paddies, she found General So's ancestral home and two members of his family, five generations removed. 
And they were like not surprised that I had shown up because they're like, well, he's world famous. And I was like, did not have the heart to tell them why he was famous in the United States. She traveled all over South Central China, showing pictures of General So's chicken to people in markets, restaurants, and passersby on the street. But the answer was always the same. No one recognized General So's chicken. And she shouldn't have been surprised. The neat cubes of boneless chicken didn't look anything like most of the food she tasted on her travels. Americans don't like to be reminded that their food ever walked or crawled or flew or swam. So, you know, there's no ears and there's no claws. There's, you know, there's no chicken feet. There's no cow's tongue. There's no duck's blood. It basically is immaculately conceived in styrofoam trays that, like, show up at Whole Foods. And that's very different. You know, after you eat in China, like you keep all the bones and like, you know, the little fishy things in a little pile next to your plate. Finally, back in Changsha, she met a restaurant manager who recognized the name of the dish. And what's more, he knew the identity of the chef who had created it. Her search was over. Or so she thought. I went to eat the original General Tso's chicken in Taiwan from the chef before he died. And it is not sweet. It is not fried. But it is chicken. <laughs> it is. It was like soy sauce and ginger and like red peppers. No broccoli to be seen. No broccoli to be seen at all. Sitting with 80-year-old culinary legend Chef Pung, Jennifer opened her laptop. She showed him photographs of American chicken tossed with heads of crispy broccoli and slathered in sweet and sour sauce. He actually said, like, this is not right. <laughs> no good. And then he's at the end, he goes, he stands up and goes, Moming which in Chinese is like, Ugh, nonsense. Chef Pung was the originator of General So's chicken. But as it turned out, he hadn't done it alone. He was mostly retired when Jennifer found him in Taiwan. But back in the early 1970s, he had been part of the new wave of immigrants that arrived in America after the Immigration Reform Act. These were some of the greatest culinary minds of their generation. So General So sort of emerges out of this culinary innovation period in the late 60s, early 70s in New York City. You have a generation of chefs who are highly trained, originally in China, fled to Taiwan when the communists took over, and then came to the United States and like introduced fine dining around the concepts of Sichuan and Hunan cuisine. When Peng moved to New York City, he opened an upscale restaurant that attracted famous regulars and rave reviews. It was there, on the east side of 44th Street, that Chef Peng introduced the original General So's recipe to America. He had named it to honor a hero of his home province. Then, as far as Jennifer can tell, it was another Chinese chef in Manhattan named Titi Wang who took Peng's original dish and made it sweeter and crunchier to appeal to a broader American palate. Between them, these two Chinese innovators created the culinary sensation that took the U.S. by storm. Jennifer says that within 10 years, General So's chicken had become a national phenomenon. It's sweet, it's fried, it's chicken. These are all things Americans love. And it's sort of like had this long march <laughs> across the country, cutting large swaths <laughs> and conquering state by state. Jennifer's search for the origin of General So's chicken led her all the way around the world. She traveled from Peru to Japan, knocked on doors and pounded the pavement in China. 
And finally, after years of painstaking research, the trail had led her back to two restaurants in the same city she grew up in. These things that we think of as like distinct and exotic and foreign are actually indigenous to the United States. They are American. And so for me, I came to peace to understand that like, oh, I'm, I'm American. Like this dish is American, I am American. I am something born and bred and distinct. And there is a place for me. I think there's still a lot of people that, you know, struggle to understand, like, are we Chinese? Are we American? We're neither. Ah, you know, but this is our own place. And your general so's chicken lives in that place with us. A few years ago, an article in the New York Times showed that Chinese restaurants across the country are beginning to close their doors. Rising rents and delivery apps might be playing a part. But Jennifer says that there's another reason for the decline. I observed that the Chinese cook so their children didn't have to. And indeed, you can see now that as this generation of Chinese restaurant owners is retiring, sometimes their children aren't taking over because they have, like, professional jobs. Like, maybe they became an accountant or they became an architect. I met someone whose son worked on Capitol Hill. And it was sort of the, the staging point so that they could carve out a living in the United States and then give their kids a great opportunity to pursue happiness. I am not a Chinese-American chef, but I am nostalgic. Growing up, my family and I would get Chinese food as a treat. My little brother always ordered beef and broccoli. I found a version of the dish called Broccoli Beef by Create TV host Chef Martin Yan in his cookbook, Martin Yan's Chinatown Cooking. The recipe calls for Chinese broccoli, but I opted for its thicker cousin, American broccoli, and I cut the stalks in half. There were a couple of things that I didn't have on hand, like Chinese rice wine and oyster sauce, but I found them pretty easily at an Asian market. You can also find them online. Get the full recipe at ifthisfoodcouldtalk.com. In our next episode, we're taking you back to Prohibition-era Los Angeles to uncover how an unorthodox partnership with the Catholic Church saved the American wine industry. If you knew a priest and you were friends, he could make a case of wine fly in your direction for a consideration, good donation. From my kitchen to yours, Tislamadek friends, bless your hands. Take care. Thanks for listening to If This Food Could Talk with me, Claudia Hanna. If you want to support us, you can follow If This Food Could Talk on your favorite podcast listening app. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really helps. You can also get updates on bonus content by following me and American Public Television on Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook. You can find more information on all of our guests this season on each episode's show notes. Production by Kariat Harmon, Reva Goldberg, Tanner Robbins, Jacob Lewis, Claudia Hanna, Nate Toby, John Barth, and the team at Great Feeling Studios. Editing by Yasmin Khan. Sound design by Kariat Harmon and Jason Sheasley. Associate producer, Kate Hayes. If This Food Could Talk is based on an original concept by Claudia Hanna. Executive producers for APT Podcast Studios are Jim Dunford, Cynthia Fenneman, and Sean Halford. Legal by Cody Brown. 
Special thanks to the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU. American Public Television is the leading syndicator of high-quality, top-rated programming to American public television stations. You can learn more at aptonline.org.